it was something of a leap of faith because um, um, you know, I wasn't sure how much traction there would be. I felt that you know there would be quite a bit of pushback um, because people would be concerned about what it was that came uh, to the surface if one started probing. But um, that was that was essentially the genesis of, of Ground Truth Solutions, trying to bring this perspective to the fore. And a lot of lot of emphasis has been placed on. Uh, value for money in, in humanitarian work. Mm. And I think the, the really important thing is not so much value for money, as central as that must be, uh, it really is about value for people. That is Nick Van Prague. He spent 20-odd years in big multilateral organizations, then he left to found a startup called Ground Truth Solutions. And this does something very specific. It works to put people affected by crises closer to the center of humanitarian response. It does that by getting their feedback on basic quality issues, timeliness, fairness, dignity, whether things are trending in the right direction. This is all put together and briefed to service providers and their donors. The core idea is to change the metrics or the criteria for how the sector defines its outcomes, to draw everybody a clearer picture of the bottom line. So there's both a really interesting career pivot here and also a lot of practical questions. We discuss what it was like to jump from a giant international bureaucracy to running a startup, how to market a service that pretty much guarantees the customer some uncomfortable feedback how the sector can sustainably shift its mindset from value for money to value for people. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. Mm-hmm. I, I do generally start these in, in the same place, which is the, the simplest question. If you are meeting someone socially uh, at the pub or at uh, a wedding, how do you explain what you do for a living now? I run a small NGO, which um, I set up, I guess, six years ago, having worked for many years at the World Bank and the UN High Commission for Refugees. And what we try and do is really try to enable and encourage humanitarian organizations to take greater account of the views and um, perceptions of people who they set out to help. So our focus is really trying to bring that perspective to bear uh, on the humanitarian system. Does that, how do normal people react to that? Does that surprise them that that's uh, needed, that that's a niche to be in? Most people, including my 97-year-old mother, think <laughs> it's an excellent it's quite, test. <laughs> think it's quite extraordinary uh, that it hasn't been done already. And I keep having to reassure her that it hasn't been. Um, although, um, you know, there's no reason why many uh, more um, organizations uh, oughtn't to be doing this. Mm. What we do see is there's, there's a lot of rhetoric around accountability to affected people, um, communication uh, with communities, uh, and so forth and so on. But this uh, too often remains rhetoric rather than action. Mm-hmm. And um, the real challenge now is to move from rhetoric to action and to make sure that we listen to people, but we also learn from what they say. And most importantly, we do something about it. Mm. What does that look like? What sort of um, context are we talking about uh, on the ground, as we say? And uh, what kind of feedback are we talking about? What kind of message uh, sort of needs to be relayed or reflected or, or built into decision-making? Well, what, what tends to happen is that the kind of the experts uh, descend in the aftermath of a crisis, uh, whether it's a natural disaster like an earthquake or uh, as a result people being sort of displaced as a result of conflict. The experts step in and, and sort of fight the last war. Uh, they, they do the kinds of things that they've been trained to do or they did last time around. And, and a lot of that makes sense. And in the heat of the moment, uh, it's probably um, the, the best approach. Mm. But... Actually, what we've discovered is that um, there is actually always time to talk to people. And there's a general tendency, or there has been 
in the humanitarian system to treat people who are affected by disasters as kind of the equivalent of sort of Victorian children seen but not heard. And it's kind of more convenient that way in many instances. Mm. But there's a tremendous amount to learn from them. And the more one can uh, listen early on, the fewer mistakes one's likely to make. But quite quickly, these programs uh, get up and running and then they kind of, you know, they, they kind of continue in the tracks that have been laid at the outset. And, and what we try to do is to bring to the decision makers, the people and the people running these programs on the ground, a kind of constant take about how people are seeing things. Because there's one thing to design a program uh, taking people's views into account, and there's another to try and update those programs uh, as a result of, 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 of people's experience, the lived experience of being a recipient of humanitarian assistance or protection. Mm. And so what we try to do is to sort of do um, the regular rounds of data collection and analysis and sense-making and working with the organizations who are running those programs to see how one can do better at taking uh, the way people see things into account and make course corrections um, in response. Mm. And there's a there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack there, of course. But uh, to concretize that a little, if you're looking at a particular um, humanitarian response, let's say, and you're doing this work and you're presenting the sort of headline findings back to the the management or executive level of mm-hmm. an organization, like what what kind of you know, findings or feedback are we talking about? What uh, what would be mm-hmm. a, you know a sample set of, of messages? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well that's that's the crucial that's the crucial question because what we do at Grand Tree Solutions is we don't ask people about facts. We don't say you know do you have everything you need? Is everything mm-hmm. great? Um, we ask uh, about their perceptions, and we look at sort of three buckets of issues, if you like. We ask questions about uh, the general uh, quality of the relationship between people who are being assisted and those who are providing the assistance. Uh, do the people who are being assisted trust those who provide it? Do they think they're competent? Um, you know, is, is, there, is, there a kind of, is there a basis uh, of understanding there which will lead to um, an effective collaboration because one needs to... Uh, both sides to, 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 to work together if these programs are to be effective. And it's really important to kind of test uh, the temperature of that relationship. So we look, we look at those kinds of issues. Uh, we also look, of course, at people's perceptions of services. You know, are their most um, important needs being met? And um, um, are the kinds of things they're being provided with relevant to their needs. One often finds that some things are over-provided and other things are under-provided. Mm-hmm. And the thing is to try and find a balance. Um, we look at the timeliness of provision. Uh, we look at the fairness of provision. And then finally, and very importantly, we look at uh, the sense of empowerment of people. Do they feel better able to stand on their own feet? Do they feel that their views are taken into account by people running those programs? Um, how do they see their future? One of those sort of political uh, polling questions, you know, is life getting better or worse? Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and th- when one puts this uh, group of questions together and you start looking across the data set, it's really interesting to see, uh, you know, who people, uh, how people um, see uh, the, the quality of the relationship uh, often depends on the extent to which they get to participate or the fairness uh, with which aid is provided. So by asking relatively few questions, which is what we do, uh, we manage to kind of dig into really uh, important issues which can determine uh, the outcome, the success uh, of humanitarian programs. Mm. I imagine that must be somewhat tough reading sometimes for the agency's concerned. I'm, I'm thinking of a perception survey that I partly um, organized in, in Congo where uh, something like 20% of the population thought that the peace operation there played a positive role and their number one suggestion for what it could do better was to leave the country. 
cease and desist. Yeah. Just stop. Just stop doing what you're doing was uh, basically what was said. Which you know was was. I mean, it was it was it was funny. Of course, at one level, it was just so uh, it was such a striking finding. But yeah. when you present that to senior leadership, they have two options: either one, they ignore it, um, or two, they ask themselves some very difficult questions, right? And and I suspect they fell in the former category, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I think that's right. I mean, first of all, there's there's real trepidation about this kind of feedback and, and making uh, this kind of feedback public. I remember when we started, um, as I say, around six years ago, uh, it was really difficult to get organizations to participate, even in pilots that we were doing. We were just testing out our methodology. People just didn't want to do it. They were, they were concerned that what they learned, um, particularly if it went up the chain of command or even worse, if it went to donors, uh, would be, you know, have, have negative implications for them. So they were kind of super resistant uh, initially. Um, then when they did come round, uh, there was a tendency to kind of uh, argue with the findings, uh, question the methodology for, you know, or the sampling strategy, mm-hmm. um, explain away why people answered the way they did rather than trying, um, you know, to sort of put oneself in their shoes and think with the shoes of the people who are affected and, and begin to think through how one might be able to improve uh, the quality of the programming and the accountability uh, that lies behind it. So the, the, initially I think there was, a, there was a good deal of wariness about this, but it's been interesting because... The, the, the sort of particularly the donor community has pushed quite hard in the direction of greater accountability, more listening, more accountability, more participation, more communication. And that has now taken root within, you know, the large humanitarian service providers, or at least some of them. And what we're seeing is that there's actually quite a bit of enthusiasm now to go further. But as I say, it tends to be driven by, by donors. There is a greater pickup uh, among some Uh, aid organizations and others. I think they see the writing on the wall and they also, of course, uh, are motivated by, you know, the right instincts and and want to do a better job and see this as one way of doing it. So increasingly, I think they're moving in that direction. But, you know, I think without pressure, uh, without the right incentive structures in place, um, we're not really going to get as far as we need uh, to be on this front. Yeah, and that's certainly a... Um, an unavoidable reality, I think, particularly in this sector. I wonder if the uh, sort of emotional journey, for lack of a better word, that um, uh, client organizations uh, or people within them would go on would also need some attention. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a very sort of purpose-driven sector, right, and people... Mm. Mm. Uh, with with caveats, but people are sort of very motivated and have strong opinions about it, and it, it must be quite tough to be told uh, actually you're uh, the people you think you're serving think you're untrustworthy or doing a bad job mm. or you know should just leave. It must mm. be quite hard for them to process. I would think. But it, I mean, it is hard to process, but what, what and, and, and one understands it, and you know, it's it's absolutely human. One, no, you know. So, sort of fear of criticism, I guess, is is, mm. is something that's shared by all of us. Um, the thing is to, to to take this feedback as an opportunity to learn, and I don't want to sound trite, but it, it really is an opportunity to learn. And the more one does in response to that feedback, and the more you engage with these communities, whether they're refugees or displaced people or whoever one's talking about, the more you engage and the more they see that you're actually listening and and, and heeding what you hear and are making changes in response, uh, you, you kind of earn their candor and you earn their respect, and you quite quickly see scores increasing over time. Um, and I think that's super heartening. And, and that's when you really begin to embed uh, this way of operating. I mean, it's, it's, it happens a lot in the private sector where people listen to their clients, they listen to their customers, and that's you know, the mark of a successful uh, commercial organization. And I think it's also the, the mark of a successful development organization or humanitarian organization as well. Those who are good at communicating, those who are good at listening and acting on um, what they hear are the ones who are doing the best job and who have the highest morale and amongst their staff. 
But I think it's it's really important to acknowledge that a lot of these organizations are doing pretty incredible job in pretty dire circumstances. And they, they, they need to be recognized for what they're doing. But all of us can do better. And I think this is a pretty kind of direct um, way to do quite a bit better than we have done uh, in the past. And the kind of methodologies are there. Uh, the, 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 the interest is there. Um, the, the willingness to spend additional resources in this area is beginning to be established. So, you know, I, I think that it's, it's something that people are um, getting used to. The other thing I should say is that affected people are pretty fair in what they say. Um, they understand the circumstances in which they are, and they, they, they understand the difficulties faced by organizations trying to help them. Mm-hmm. And they're, 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 I, I think they're very, very fair in the way they perceive what's going on. Mm. Yeah, there's a, there's an interesting line on your um, on your website uh, to the effect that uh, you wanted to introduce uh, sort of a more private sector, and I'm using air quotes, uh, sort of philosophy on customer satisfaction or quality management, um, which. Uh, you know, sounds, uh, of course, like a great thing on paper, but any time you say you want to uh, introduce elements of customer experience or this kind of terminology to a humanitarian organization, I imagine you get some immediate pushback. Yeah, I, I guess there's less pushback than in the past. I yeah. think it's, it's, if one's talking about, you know, the kind of experience, I think that that's the crucial thing to look at. We're mm-hmm. not really looking at satisfaction you know that, that that's yeah. really the wrong word to use in most of these instances one's looking at you know the the the, the lived experience of, of being um on the user end of humanitarian aid and that is something that is is a useful addition uh to the evidence that decision makers can use in determining how they run their programs. Mm. Um, It's not the only thing that matters, but it's probably the least measured thing that really matters. And um, I I, I see it as a a kind of additional variable in the decision-making process. If one can include people's perceptions, this is a really useful additional metric. And in many instances, it may be the kind of canary in the mine shaft in as much as it gives you a heads up sense of um you know the direction that things are taking if, if the quality of the relationship is really poor if people feel that their priority needs are not met if they feel that um you know they are disempowered um then one needs to look pretty carefully at every other metric of what you're doing um and, and work out how you can do things better can i ask Switch focus slightly. Um, you jumped from a relatively uh, institutional background, let's say, at the bank, very large organization, not famous for its efforts in um, community-level consultation. It has got a lot better and does have quite structured process around this for, for big programs, at least. But it's quite a big jump to go from the World Bank to a focus specifically on sort of bottom-up perspectives, if we can call it that, or or, uh, service recipient perspectives. What drove that? Why why did you decide that this was going to be your piece of the the puzzle? Yeah, well, I I actually began my career um, at UNHCR in the 1980s, and I, um, you know, the... um, I, I, I spent some time working in Sudan and traveled, um, you know, to many parts of the world in the five or six, I don't know, six or seven years I was there mm-hmm. um, before I kind of moved more into the development space. And, um, but my heart, as, as with so many people who worked in humanitarian um, organizations, my heart sort of lay and always kind of lay in this space. Mm. And I, I went off, I worked at the World Bank for 21 years and um, 
Then I was asked actually by Antonio Guterres to, to join him when he became High Commissioner for Refugees. And I went back um, to Geneva on secondment for the World Bank and at a kind of much more senior level than I had been uh, in the 1980s. But what really surprised me is that although the organization had grown enormously and budgets had multiplied, the, the general approach remained quite similar. And um, it just struck me that these uh, organizations, um, although there's a kind of recognition within them and certainly outside them on the part of the donors who are putting a lot of money into these organizations and into the work that they do, um, the sort of sense that they needed to change, it was very difficult to get any purchase on these organizations from the outside. Mm-hmm. And it was equally difficult to get any purchase on change processes from the inside. Um, and so they were kind of stuck yeah. in what was recognized as being a kind of, um, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, stuck in a way that wasn't really addressing the kinds of um, needs which were increasing daily um, that were out there. Uh, these are organizations that were, were sort of had, had, had really come into being. Certainly the United Nations organization, mostly in the aftermath of the Second World War, where um, the predecessor of UNHCR went back to the First World War. But these were organizations which basically had mandates, had, had um, a kind of chasse garde, if you like, mm-hmm. and, and were very difficult to move as a result of all of these things. And my sense was that if you wanted to actually coax some change, the way to do it was to uh, bring to bear a perspective that couldn't be argued with. Um, these are organizations that see themselves as, as doing important work and portray themselves in their fundraising activities and the publicity that surrounds what they do as being kind of on the side of the angels. And they, 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 they do see themselves that way, and quite rightly so, because they're doing super important work. But I think they all recognize in their heart of hearts that they could do a much better job. And my sense was that the way to do that was to bring the perspective of people who they're trying to help uh, much more centrally to bear on the way they operate. And um, it was something of a leap of faith because um, um, I wasn't sure how much traction there would be. I felt that you know, there would be quite a bit of pushback um, because people would be concerned about what it was that came uh, to the surface if one started probing. Um, but um, that, was, that was essentially the genesis of, of Ground Truth Solutions, trying to bring this perspective to the fore as basically a tool to push for more effective, more efficient um, humanitarian action. And a lot of, lot of emphasis has been placed on uh, value for money in, in humanitarian work, and quite rightly so, because there's only a certain amount of money uh, that's likely to become available, and as, as we're saying, the needs are growing. Mm. I think the, the really important thing is not so much value for money, as central as that must be, uh, it really is about value for people. And if we can get the sort of value for people um, issue to the fore, I think uh, the value for money thing will, will follow. And that has that evolved over the last six years? Were your initial ideas broadly correct, or would you would you change them now? Or have you changed them? I think I think um, I think they were broadly correct. Um, I think that you know when I first started this thing, I thought the way to do it was to really begin with a kind of independent evaluation organisation, because what happens in this space is that organisations. Um, have departments which have a certain um, distance from from management, but they're nevertheless part of the organization to evaluate how well they're doing, or they hire consultants who they hire and hire again, so they may be independent, but they're in some sense beholden to the organizations. So it seemed to me that the way to kind of nudge change or push change was through um, independent evaluation processes. But I was actually convinced uh, by people who were in the evaluation business, that people paid little uh, attention to evaluations. <laughs> I, will, uh, I will second that, yeah. That's, uh... <laughs> and the, a better way to go was to sort of bring this, you know, this, this, this central element. It's all about the people. Bring their 
voices to the fore. And I think that, that was a really strong insight that was given to me actually by um, uh, John Mitchell at, at ALNA, one of the organizations mm-hmm. that focuses on evaluation. And he, he underlined that, and I really am I'm grateful to him for that advice. But what we've seen in the last six years is a growing emphasis on this business of accountability to people affected by humanitarian crisis. And we have now a, um, we have now a um, real head of steam around the idea of a participation revolution. This is something that's enshrined in the uh, grand bargain, which was the big reform program agreed by um, an important set of donors and agencies at the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016. Mm-hmm. And, and this idea of really, really pushing forward on participation, making this a kind of touchstone of humanitarian effectiveness, um, that has been really, really key. And we, we've seen the promulgation of the core humanitarian standard, which is about how do we actually go about um, um, responsibly running humanitarian programs. And that, again, places enormous emphasis on, on, on the way it's seen from the grassroots, from the people who are providing, uh, who, who are the, 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 the recipients. We used to call them beneficiaries. But often that term beneficiary had a kind of optimistic ring to it. Um, and it has also a sort of condescending connotation. So I think it's much better that we talk about affected people, although it doesn't really sort of trip off one's tongue necessarily easily, but it, it's, a, it's a more accurate description of the people who are at the user interface of aid. And uh, I think so what we're seeing is a lot more interest in these, in these issues. But often the danger is that it becomes a kind of, um, you know, sort of proverbial... Um, ticking of the box exercise and people set up a helpline or a suggestion box mm-hmm. or uh, some other kind of artifact of accountability and, and, and believe the job is done. But of course it's not. And there's a lot of confusion around, you know, what are effective ways of including the voice of people in the way programs are run and, and, and the sort of um, helpline a suggestion box is at the sort of is at one end of the spectrum, but it's that the, the, there are many other ways of bringing people more centrally into the way programs are designed and managed, and I think that's where we need to be pushing things. Has there been a, a cultural or, or generational shift in in this regard? I mean, I I don't want to parody sort of you know the work that was done in the 80s and 90s and so on as sort of proverbial trucking and dumping of, of aid. But is there more buy-in and awareness from people coming into the sector now, do you think? Is this something that people are more mm-hmm. conscious of um, compared to your early experience? I think so. I think it is much more... Um, much greater recognition that, 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 that these these are not just sort of faceless people, um, you know, caseloads, as we used to describe them as. <laughs> Isn't that great? You uh, phrase. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, warehousing is another. Yeah. Uh, this, was a, this was not a word that came out of the sort of aid industry, but the critics of the aid industry. Um, but there was a kind of faceless quality to, to, to the kind of um, way... Uh, the work was was approached and described. I think that's changed enormously. Every time we um, advertise to to hire a a new member of our team, um, we get enormous response and people, um, many of whom come from the humanitarian sector when they apply for these jobs, Mm. um, are incredibly keen to kind of push ahead on this. They they, They say they've been you know, working on humanitarian programs and they see that this is really the missing piece and they really want to contribute to it. I think that's it's 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 a friend of mine who's teaching at Georgetown University called me yesterday, and he's doing a course on the Syria crisis this term. And he's got a whole segment on listening to people, the voices of, of, of Syrian refugees. So I think you know, there is this kind of I think the younger generation is much more interested in this stuff. They don't just want they don't go into it looking for a kind of prestigious job in the international. Um, sector, they're actually trying to make a difference in a really concrete way, and they see 
one route to doing that is through um, you know much more emphasis on listening and much more emphasis on communicating. One of the things that really uh, has, has, has been a huge interest to me in, in, in this work over the last few years has been how little information people affected by crisis have. They don't understand why they're eligible for whatever it is they're being provided, whether it's cash or food aid or whatever it happens. They have no idea why they were chosen and why the people in the next house or the next hut or the next tent were not chosen. And um, there's an enormous information gap. And that is one of the greatest lacuna, I think, um, in the system at the moment. It comes through very loud and clear uh, in all the research that we're doing, all the surveys that we're doing in many, many different parts of the world. And interestingly, the, the reaction on the part of some of the uh, organizations who are running these programs is to be quite secretive about passing on information. They're concerned about, you know, oh my goodness, if they understand our eligibility criteria, they may be upset. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so, so, so it's, it's really interesting. They also, there is this kind of rather old-fashioned view, which unfortunately continues to, 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 be, to, be, to be out there, which is that, you know, if you, if you ask people too many questions about how they see things, that it'll just raise their expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we want to avoid raising their expectations at all costs. So let's just kind of keep them in the dark. Um, that's, not what, that's not what they say. That's what I'm saying. Uh, and, of course... What we discover time and time again is that if you seek people's views and if you explain carefully uh, what you're doing and why you're doing it and when you're doing it, um, they really appreciate that. And they are, you know, they're already living in pretty dire circumstances and they understand uh, why that is. And they're much more understanding um, and accepting uh, if, they, if they have a clearer sense of what's going on. Mm. Um, and that, that's, I think, a really, really important learning that, from the last couple of years. I think a lot of the critical uh, perspectives on this sort of stuff comes from the Great Society era in the U.S., sort of the 60s in particular, where, you know, the theory was, well, you send uh, planners and uh, public health specialists, et cetera, out to impoverished communities and they'll fix them and then they'll come back to Washington, D.C., and you know, the problem will be solved. So there was a burgeoning critical literature on this, um, which is still is still drawn upon to some extent uh, to the effect that sometimes this is not participation. It's non-participation, you know. It's, it's uh, as you say, a tick box exercise and an and artifact, a physical artifact out there in the field, but not one that sort of genuinely feeds into... Uh, prioritization or is genuinely taken on board as, as a legitimate measure of performance. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, are there ethical red lines there? I mean, how do you manage the, the risk of being put in that role where you're enabling uh, the appearance of doing something, but not necessarily a genuine interest in doing something? Yeah, I mean, I, that is obviously a, a danger that you go, you know, you, you know, you, you go out, you talk to people, you find out what they think, you find out what they want, and then nothing happens. Mm. Uh, that is a real dilemma. I mean, what, one of the things that we set great store by is, at the very least, getting back to the communities whose informa- who, from whom we have gathered information, whose perceptions we have sought. Mm-hmm. and telling them what we learned. And in a way, that then becomes, even if the organizations don't move to act on feedback right away, it, it, it provides something of a, um, it, it provides some sort of um, power, if, you, if, if I can use that term, mm-hmm. to the people who, who, who learn that they're not alone in feeling these things. And they can then say, hey, look, I'm not the only person who's complaining about the fact that they don't understand why um, I'm not eligible for a cash transfer program. Lots of other people seem to feel this. Can we kind of become clearer about what's going on? So I think it really is to, to provide people with sort of the aggregated results of these surveys is empowering in itself. Much more important, and we were working in the Caribbean after the hurricanes, um, 
last last year. And, and, and there we were doing just that, getting back to communities about what we'd learned. And they're saying, you know, we know what we think. Uh, we want to know what's going to be done about it. So, you know, um, yeah, fair enough. So, <laughs> fair enough. Um, so you, you know, you, you've got to find a, a balance here. And it's really important to say, we hear you and we're doing this, that and the other. But at the very least, you ought to be able to tell them uh, what, 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 what the sort of bigger picture looks like. You know, otherwise there's a danger you're just kind of this sort of excavating information and doing with it what you will. But, and you, you know, the well very quickly dries up. If, if you know, our, our methodology is all about going back to people on a fairly regular basis, not the same people necessarily, but we sample within the same communities time and again. And if, if, if they feel that there's nothing in it for, for them, they will become pretty disinterested in responding. And similarly, if you do get back to them and if they do see some change, you earn their candor over time and they beca- the, the, the quality of their responses becomes much more useful. Uh, instead of sort of, I get people think always that um, affected people are going to kind of play the system and tell you what they think you want to hear or whatever. Uh, but what we've discovered is that the more you kind of, the more they see that you're going to respond and the more responsive the system becomes, the more frank and straightforward and honest they are in providing feedback because they see that it actually serves their purposes to be honest and straightforward. Mm. Is there a sort of ideal uh, setup on the client side? I mean, what, what would you like them to be doing with that information? What are the moving parts on the side of the institution to actually mm. use this information in a, in a meaningful way once it's been made available to them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 my, when I started this journey, my feeling was that, you know, if you provide the organizations with information, basically, you know, if, if you get that, if you provide them with the feedback, uh, you think it through with them, make recommendations, uh, they will do something. It very quickly became clear that that wasn't necessarily going to happen. And this was the, even in organizations which at the top had, you know, senior people saying how important it was to listen and be accountable to the people you're serving and so forth and so on. It still was kind of, you know, hard to get traction um, just by providing information um, you know, or, or helping organizations do a better job of listening and, and learning. That last step to action was really difficult. And then I thought, well, what you need to do is you need to get the donors who is, you know, if, if, you, if you look at this kind of that the marketplace for humanitarian aid, uh, the market is really the donors because those are the people that the uh, aid agencies are really looking to and are more responsive to. They're not, you know, the, 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 the affected people are a kind of captive market, uh, whereas the, the, the donors are um, you know, much more, there's much greater elasticity of supply of aid, uh, mm. let's say, than there is in terms of the, 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 the demand side of the equation. And it seemed that if you could get donors to specify in their grant agreements that uh, organizations had to put in place um, um, procedures to listen to people, and then in their reporting they had to demonstrate how they had listened and responded and altered course and done the needful to become an accountable organization, I thought that was the kind of the perfect arrangement. So you've got organizations who, who are listening, you've got donors who are demanding that they not only listen but act on the feedback and report on how they've acted on it, that would work. But you know, this, is a, this, is a, this is a sector like most, I guess, full of you know, experienced hands and good at playing the system and um, could, could, could tick any number of boxes and, 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 and claim that they were being responsive but may not necessarily ha- have been being so. And I think that the, 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 there's, a, there's, there's a new, uh, a new um, element here which is really promising, I feel. And this is, if you can, and this is, we're seeing this actually in Haiti, we're seeing it in Chad, um, there's interest in Somalia, um, that as, as you track the implementation of these vast humanitarian programs, you're, you're looking... Um, essentially at kind of outputs, how many tents were delivered, how much food was supplied, how much cash was transferred. Um, you're looking, you're sort of quantifying these outputs and you're 
um, you're, you're essentially judging the effectiveness on the, of the program in terms of, you know, did you do what you said you would do? And what, 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 what's, what's happening in a few places, which is really interesting, and I'm, I said, I'm, I'm really excited about this. If you can use people's perceptions around uh, some of the objectives that these um, country teams of humanitarians have set for themselves, um, if, if, if you have decided that you're going to treat people with respect, which is, for instance, uh, an objective of the humanitarian country team in Chad, you mm-hmm. can ask people whether they feel they're treated with respect. You can begin to use perceptions of uh, the affected population um, against the objectives which the humanitarians have set for themselves as the basis uh, to measure uh, the, 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 uh, the implementation of these programs. And this very quickly gets you away from just focusing on value for money to focus on value for people. And, and, and the way people perceive things then becomes the touchstone of the success of a program. And in most instances, in my view, it's a much more effective and accurate take on how well all these programs are going than many other of the metrics that are currently used. And if we can shift um, this and, and make this kind of standard practice again across all, I think there are 33 humanitarian response plans in the world today. A humanitarian response plan is put in place where there's you know, an intensity of humanitarian effort and you pull together all the strands of the humanitarian community in a given country, and that becomes a response plan. If you could use metrics based on people's perceptions as both an input into determining what needs are, but also as a metric in assessing how well one's doing in achieving the objectives that have been set or one has set for oneself, that will be real progress, and that will be a kind of a piece of the incentive puzzle that's been missing until now. Yeah, I think the difficulty, which I mean that is encouraging, but the difficulty that springs to my mind is that in a humanitarian response, you have you know what would be a uh, an ordinary public service uh, in a non-crisis context is split up and parcelled out amongst dozens, you know, sometimes hundreds of different actors, mm. which does leave <laughs> a fair bit of leeway for any one actor to say, well, yes, people hate. Uh, the situation with respect to water and sanitation, but that's not us. That's all the other providers. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. you do have this sort of attribution difficulty, which would um, compete mm-hmm. with the uh, the sort of supply side logic that you're describing, right? If it if it can't be tied to an individual institution, then how do you know who is who is better and, and who is worse? You know, I think one that two two things. One thing is that what we're doing in a number of places now is, is really looking right across a humanitarian response. How do people see things broadly? Mm-hmm. So in Chad, where you have you know, three, three separate huge humanitarian crises in the east of the country, where people are still there from Darfur, people in the south who are coming across from the Civil War in the Central African Republic, and people in the West who are displaced by Boko Haram and desertification and, 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 and general, um, you know, a whole set of linked problems which are, have led to great distress. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this is, so we're looking right across these three programs and what we learn and what we can um, really describe to the many actors uh, who are involved in those programs is, is we, we provide a kind of overview of the way it's seen by these, uh, these different population groups. And we can break it down by gender, we can break it down by geography, we can break it down by ethnicity. Um, we, we provide this, this overview. It's then up to individual organizations who are working in those places to, to, who, 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 to, to sort of say, wow, uh, people in this area do not feel that their priority needs are being met or do not have the information they need to be able to access services or do not feel empowered by, you know, what's being done. Do, you know, so they can look at this stuff and they can begin then to say, well, let's dig deeper ourselves. How does this relate to what we're doing? 
Mm. And you, I think one has to, you know, this is not being provided to these organizations on a plate. They need to then go out and say, wow, if, 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 if a representative sample of this very large population feels this way, um, what does this mean for the groups of people who are receiving the services that we provide? And either they can then go about doing their own inquiries, they can talk to people saying, look, we've learned this, and, you know, does this apply to the work we're doing? So I, I think essentially stuff that we're doing is, is, is an input into a much broader process of inquiry uh, that, that hopefully will be spurred, and it's up to individual organizations to be doing these. I mean, ordinary refugees don't know who's providing the aid. They don't care for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, but I, I think it's up to the organizations themselves to begin to dig into this sort of common data set and see which pieces of it are relevant to them. And then they can conduct their own activities um, to listen and dig deeper and, and find out what the implications are for what they're doing. You know, I wonder, when you look back at 21 years at the, the bank and what, six or eight at UNHCR, um, would you have worked differently? Would you have done things differently at that time with, you know, if that kind of resource had been available? I, I feel quite strongly, um, first of all, it's really refreshing to be um, outside of large organizations. And, <laughs> it certainly and is. Not, not being sort of, you know, stymied at every turn. Um, I'm not necessarily stymied, but, you know, having to sort of fight the bureaucracy in many different ways. And it's also, they're also great, they're great organizations. They're full of brilliant, fabulous, talented people and uh, who are a real pleasure to work with. And, you know, some of my best friends are from UNHCR and the World Bank. Uh, but as in, the, sort of the institutional kind of churn is fairly wearing. And, uh, I, you know, it's, 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 it's enormously refreshing to be uh, outside uh, these large organizations now. Um, I kind of wish I'd done that earlier. I wish I'd sort of seen uh, how one could begin to influence these big uh, bureaucracies. You know, I, I, I see them, not necessarily the World Bank and, and UNHCR, but within the humanitarian sector, you've got many large organizations. And it is a kind of collusive cartel. And they, they kind of work together. They, they, they don't want to rock too many boats. Um, it's a large, multi-billion-dollar industry, and um, I was part of that for for quite a long time. And I, I wish that they would be much more embracing of uh, real participation, real uh, voice giving. Uh, I think a lot of it is kind of paying lip service and you know, just going as far as um, they feel they have to go um, to, to tick those boxes we were discussing earlier, um, but not necessarily sort of going as far as they need to go. I think what's most encouraging to me of late is um, that there are a bunch of other people who feel the same way as I do and recognize that actually small organizations like Ground Truth Solutions, like ACAPs, like you know, a bunch of other organizations, translators without borders, these small organizations which are out there pushing and pulling and prodding these large organizations uh, and using their agility and their independence to, 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 to try and encourage uh, what is a fairly uh, heavy sector uh, to, to, to move uh, in, in, in a new direction and, and to take on board uh, new ways of working and new and, and, and new ways of thinking about the issues. So I think, yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm really glad I spent those years in those organizations, wish I'd gone a little earlier, wish they'd learned to dance a little more nimbly and would be more open to these ideas. But um, I think, you know, we, we're sort of moving in the right direction. And um, I, I'm quite encouraged by the support that we've received and the sort of partnerships that we've developed with many of these organizations now who really want to push ahead. Last thing, I, I know you have to, to get going, but the one last thing that I do ask everybody is, was there a, a book or, you know, publication or, or even just a, a meeting that was particularly influential in, in taking that jump and in, in <laughs> taking that uh, 
the risk of, of leaving those large institutional homes and doing this thing that, as you say, was uh, maybe with you at the start, but um, was not the primary focus for all those years? Well, at the risk of sounding corny, my wife, um, I was, I was, who really, I, I was sort of back at the World Bank, having been at UNHCR, mm-hmm. um, and sort of thinking, what do I do next? And within these large, within that large institution, and she was saying, you know, you've been talking about this idea of of, of, of using uh, the voice of the people, so to speak to really sort of push for change. Why don't you just get out of your comfort zone and get on with it? And, um, and she, she really pushed me into doing that, and I'm really, really grateful to her for, for, for doing so. When you set up something like this, it's incredibly difficult to get traction. It's mm-hmm. incredibly difficult to get resources to do it because you need a track record. You need, um, you know, you need, to be, you need to be recognized as doing something really useful. And it was actually thanks to the Swiss government and the Swiss Development Corporation that gave us a very small grant early on to kind of develop the methodology that then the IKEA Foundation came in behind, um, which enabled us to develop into now a a fairly, um, you know, a sort of a, a recognized player in the field. But without that early funding and a few early believers, and I would also include some people in DFID in that in that mix as well. Who, who really sort of saw this as an opportunity uh, to take this agenda forward. It really wouldn't have happened without that. I don't think anyone ever got in trouble for uh, thanking their wife in <laughs> this sort of setting. I think you're on solid ground there. But I really mean it. I mean, I think, you know, I'm not being... It really, it really is. It was, it was in, yeah, yeah. It, it's it, this, this, you know, and shifting from being an entrepreneur... Uh, sorry, from being a bureaucrat to being an entrepreneur is like, wow, mm-hmm. it's just completely different. I mean, in, inside big, big bureaucracies, you argue for your budget, but you don't actually have to go out uh, and meet multiple people and try and encourage them to provide you support and so forth and so on. And, you know, especially small organizations are difficult to fund because to provide, you know, a few hundred thousand euros or pounds or whatever it happens to be uh, is as complicated as giving several million. And so... You know, this is this. It's it's difficult. It's super difficult, mm. and um, there are now uh, funding donors, funding agencies who are you know who see the value of these smaller organisations and are trying to find um, financial mechanisms to support them, which are not too onerous on themselves in terms of um, actually um, providing resources and ensuring that there is um, the kind of oversight that's necessary. listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.